Hi folks, Chris Roberts here. I just wanted to give some fair warning as to not to trigger anybody. On this week's episode, even though it's read out as part of a full text quote, we do have an utterance of the N-word on this episode. I would like to hope that you've listened to this show in the past and that you realize that that's not normally how we roll. But I think in this case, in the context, especially for this film, I at least need to stick with the language that the artist wanted to use to get his point across. That being said, we here at the LSCE would like to reinforce that we are not condoning any form of hate speech here of any kind, nor do we think it has any place in civilized society. And we would like to offer a heartfelt apology in advance in case we've offended anybody. That was never our goal. So I just want to say thank you. And now, on with the show. So all I wanted to have is some peace. It's my job to make them believe that they are going to get it better on the other side. It's my job. Mumu, the boy you saved, and those other kids, they're laying down the real religion. They got it. You offer pretty good news to me slapping up on some white cups. <laughs> yes, indeed. gonna say a black Ave Maria for you. Like the kids say, later for waiting, you saved a plant that they were planning to pick in the bud. That's why the man's down on you. That's why the man's down on you. I'm still gonna say a black Ave Maria I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street. The show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers, so if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Now, it's February, and we are kicking off this month with some amazing films we feel you will love with our new theme of soul cinema. And doing that, the LSCE is screening the 1971 Melvin Van Peebles cult classic, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Join us! Now, 
I gotta freely admit, I was late to the game when it came to viewing Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Like so many, I didn't sit down to watch it properly until after I had already screened the biofilm that covered the triumph of getting it made in the first place. Seriously, go watch the film Badass. That is the movie I ended up screaming in my dorm room that got me on this journey to see the actual film. I saw Mario Van Peebles making a vanity project that basically highlighted the wonders of his father and what he went through to get this film made. The story itself, very compelling, very fun. It's an interesting one. And that got me interested in finding the original film. And I must say, after going out and renting it, I was not disappointed in what I saw. Written, composed, produced, directed, edited, and starring Melvin Van Peebles. What was not to like about this? But hey, I must say we already covered the man's life in the last episode. So how's about this? I'll just jump in to starting to talk about where he was and what he was doing when it came to getting this picture made. What do you say? So let's set the scene. We are post the making of Watermelon Man, and Peebles is trying to evaluate his next move. He didn't have any projects selected for himself to work on next. Nothing was exactly in the pipe and ready to go, but he was painfully aware that he had a three-picture deal with Columbia Pictures, and that was now being held in the balance. He had done them a solid, and had done them actually a great job, finishing and filming Watermelon Man. They paid him to do it. It was done. The film made money. But nothing else was going to happen for him. His contract would do him no good if he didn't have any ideas to pitch back to the studio. And so he was very much aware that he needed to come up with something fast because he was not enamored with working for the studio itself. Rather, in the back of his mind, Van Peebles sort of had already figured out that whatever my next project's going to be, it's not going to be accepted by the brass. And so he wanted to make use of the line of credit that the studio had extended to him that would give him access to equipment, film labs, as much as he could touch before they would eventually pull the plug on him. Now, he wanted to do something that was authentic, something that would give the audiences something to cheer for. He was also flirting with an opportunity to try to come up with something that would be viewed as revolutionary, something political, even a little bit dangerous, that had a genuine appeal to him. And here, let's put this into some other context. Black exploitation as a genre had not yet been born. That genre would be made official that same year of 1971 that saw the one-two punch release of this week's film, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and the movie Shaft. That would get the ball rolling and would really bring the genre to life. Now, as we would define it here, let's use the characterization that historian Celeste A. Fisher uses to explain black exploitation. It's a genre that places importance on the role of the individual on the fringe of society by depicting a super black character or a lone hero who challenges the dominant culture and, of course, wins. Black exploitation had a rise in distinction due to several factors of this time. First, 
the studio system itself was crumbling to the ground in the late 1960s. It had already started long before then, but audiences were starting to get their regular entertainment fix from television rather than the movies. The Black Power Movement, which was spearheaded by groups like the Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam, they were themselves gaining clout, attracting more and more of the youth away from the previous nonviolent civil rights politics that could be found at the NAACP and with SNCC, contrasting their more action-oriented and militant tactics when it came to dealing with racism. Now, that's not to say that the NAACP itself was in decline. During this period, that organization was calling for a more humanistic and, honestly, let's face it, a more realistic portrayal of African Americans when it came to Hollywood films. You see, positive black role models on the big screen were few and far between in the late 60s going into the early 70s, and when they did show up, often portrayed by some very fine thespians like, for example, Sidney Poitier, they were generally portrayed as being this sort of ultimate version of acceptability to white audiences. Their personal morals, their ethics, their hygiene, their dress, their characterization were all, of course, beyond reproach. And because of that, their masculinity nuanced, the sexuality of that character non-existent. They were safe. They made white people feel comfortable having to and I'm saying this in air quotes, abide by seeing a person of color in this story. I know, it's kind of messed up. So with these three factors, the situation was just right for a new genre to come along and really start catering stories that African-American audiences would want to see. Melvin Van Peebles, coming along with his particular blend of urban folk hero meets black power advocate, didn't so much kick off a movement. It was actually one that had already been sputtering to gain traction. Rather, the success that Sweetback would usher in would tip off big studios to have an interest in in the money that was made, and therefore suddenly a genre that was considered to be burgeoning and on the fringe was front and center in the mainstream zeitgeist as studios wanted to get involved and get some of that cash. With all of that in mind, Melvin Van Peebles sat down and penned a little story, one about a poor sex worker who goes on the run from the law after assaulting two police officers who were in the process of beating a young man. Oh, except here. The outcome? After more violence and a further struggle against the authorities, he ends up escaping, and thus he wins. Peebles had stated the idea took a little time to come to him, but after a trip he took driving out to the Mojave Desert, he went out into the hills and walked for a bit, and then decided he was going to make a film about, quote, a brother getting the man's foot out of his ass. Seems simple enough, right? Well, Van Peebles was laying out the groundwork and writing the script, but he needed something else to keep the powers that be busy making them believe that he actually had something else in the works. Now, when executives came sniffing around, wondering exactly what Van Peebles was doing with the lab equipment, he would promptly tell them he was putting things together to make, of course, a pornographic film. You know, something artsy. Now, something else you have to understand, porno chic hadn't happened yet. 
Deep Throat wouldn't come out until 1972, and the golden age of porn in America had yet to really occur. So what really makes this all the more shocking is when Van Peebles says this to folks, they smile, and instead of gasping or, you know, being shocked, they shoot him a thumbs up and say, sounds great, okay. It was only after the script was completed and that Van Peebles had started to show it around that folks at Columbia lost their patience with him and started to cut off his funding and access to their equipment, their labs, as well as canceling his three-picture deal. But by that point, it was too late. Peebles was already in motion and he knew what he was doing. He started to put feelers out and put together a really tight, ethnically diverse, non-union crew to make this movie dream happen. For a host of reasons, Van Peebles sticks with the lie that for production purposes, they're indeed all still making pornographic features. He ends up begging, borrowing, and stealing enough cash on hand to put together roughly a hundred grand to get this film shot. To keep the studios and others from interfering in his business, he ends up channeling all of that money through a Caribbean bank, and he sets up an LLC, renting out an entire processing lab to give him complete control over any negatives that he would create. Van Peebles didn't initially set out to play the main character. Rather, he had a real problem finding actors who were willing to star in an hour and a half of film that offered so little in the way of dialogue for a lead character. Not wanting to have to change the script and looking at it as another way to save money, Van Peebles ultimately chose to play the role himself. As time rolled on, the story itself morphed, though. As he told Variety in June of 1971, he had originally decided to take the role himself after he experienced a bunch of black actors informing him that they were worried about the implications of a film with this level of, quote, gamey dialogue and full frontal nudity that would have a negative effect on their careers. Or, you know, the first one. Yeah, pick, pick whichever. The cast of actors, though, that he did end up pulling together were mostly amateurs, and, or if they were legitimate actors, they were all still unknowns. Guys like John Dullahan, of the original Battlestar Galactica fame, here as the villainous commissioner, or John Amos, of Good Times fame, showing up here as an ally of our hero. Even a young Mario Van Peebles got to be a part of the film, awkwardly getting to play the child version of the main character, which, if you stop and think about it for a second, it's pretty nuts. It's your first time acting, you're 13 years old, and your first ever scene is going to be the main character losing their virginity to a prostitute. All while your dad directs you. And action! Jeez, talk about trial by fire. The movie was scheduled to be filmed over the course of 19 days throughout Los Angeles, particularly in the Watts neighborhood, and then out in the desert for the run sequence. This was an example of pure guerrilla filmmaking. Van Peebles and his crew would roll up onto a location, get out, shoot their scenes, get as much as they could with coverage, and then quickly leave not establishing a presence, not pulling any permits, not notifying locals. 
only on the day that he was going to have to set a car on fire did Van Peebles have the foresight to pull a permit. Here's the problem, though. He had filed the paperwork late on a Thursday, and he was shooting the scene on Friday. So his actions, while all technically legal, were still not known to the authorities. Therefore, when he starts filming and he sets the car he was going to set on fire, the crowds you see in the picture and the fire trucks that show up to put out the controlled blaze, all of that chaos caused is very real. None of those people knew it was a film. They were actually running towards what they thought was a real fire. But Van Peebles was smart enough to keep the camera rolling and to catch all of this wonderful free pandemonium that was unfolding in front of him. On one hand, this really shaped the independent feel and contributed to the DIY, do-it-yourself, penny-smart mentality that he was having. But at the same time, it caused other problems. You see, having a non-union, multi-ethnic crew that led you to being regularly harassed. On several occasions, the crew was stopped, detained, or even outright arrested by the police that they encountered. One of the charges being that the actors playing cops in the film were charged with impersonating officers by way of their dress. See, folks, this is the reason why you pull permits with the city before you shoot. It avoids things like this happening. Van Peebles was also forced to perform the majority of stunts himself, which initially didn't seem that hard until you actually stop and realize that a film about a man on the run, he's got to be constantly moving. So most of the scenes are Van Peebles jogging, climbing, jumping fences, climbing walls, jumping ditches, launching himself off of bridges. The latter stunt he was forced to do over 10 times to get the shots needed. Wanting to keep the crew safe, Van Peebles and a number of the members of the production staff were all armed to the teeth with pistols and rifles while on this set. One of Van Peebles' girlfriends ended up coming and visiting the set one day, and thinking she was being helpful, she accidentally placed the director's very real, very loaded pistol into a box of prop guns on the set causing the director to have a panic after the fact that the weapon that had been issued was given to one of the actors on the set, not knowing it was a hot gun. Thankfully, tragedy was averted and the weapon was found in time. The flip side here, Van Peebles wanted realism and he didn't want to deal with equipping actors with the gear needed to portray bikers. You know, you'd have to get them the costumes, rent the bikes that would drive the costs up, whatnot. So it was decided it would just be more cost-effective to hire real members of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang to be in this film playing bikers. Again, though, they'd have to deal with their rough behavior on the set. Before they had finished shooting the biker queen scene, Van Peebles was told by the gang members that they were feeling um, that they were done for the day and they'd be taking off. Van Peebles disagreed and countered, hey, you've been paid to work for the entire day, you're going to stay until we're done shooting, and then you can go. Well, apparently this biker was not picking up on the vibe on set, and he felt it was wise to pull a knife on the director, initially threatening the man. 
but Van Peebles was ready, and he ended up snapping his fingers, and the gentleman quickly realized that all of the men around him who were working the lights and the cameras, they were also holding weapons that were trained on him and his biker pals. The knife was quickly used instead to clean the man's nails before it was put away, and returned to position on set, allowing the bikers to save face and the message to be received loud and clear. MVP was running the show, and the bikers would finish out the day cleaning up and doing the scenes. Now, speaking of running the show, Van Peebles also got a little method with this film in a way that was not exactly normal. Now, for years, Sweet Sweetback has been rumored to being a film that featured unsimulated sex on screen. Now, as one who's watched the film, I would argue you're probably not catching any of that on the screen itself. Um, there's not a lot of movement, let's say. But the fact does remain that Van Peebles often enjoyed working with <clears throat> and rehearsing with several of the ladies on the crew. Years later, he would admit in a 2003 documentary, The Real Deal, What It Is, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, that he contracted a very nasty case of gonorrhea while on set. And while he was kind enough not to divulge the name of the actress he claims gave it to him, he did use the illness he received to file with the Directors Guild of America for workman's compensation while he was making this movie because, after all, he received his illness and injury on the job, and that was a request they actually paid out. Incidentally, he used the money he received from that payment to buy more film, so, you know, it all went right back into the project. Peebles, though, still had a large problem. He didn't have the money to get this film completed, at least as far as post-production goes. Now, in hindsight, Peebles would complain in interviews a year later, you know, everyone thought I was a genius because I wrote, produced, directed, starred, I scored this whole movie by myself. Acting like this entire time, it was my intent to take all of the credit and keep all of the profits. In reality, the only reason I did this is because I had to. If people had been willing to give me money to invest in my art, I would have hired people to do those things. Genius has nothing to do with it. I was alone and desperate. Oddly enough, of all places, MVP would end up receiving money from, Bill Cosby came forth, got in touch with him, and loaned the actor-director $50,000 to complete the film. He refused to have credit for it. He refused to let Van Peebles pay him back with interest on the loan on multiple occasions, even after the film was financially viable. He simply told the director, when you have the money, pay me back. And thus, we owe it to Bill Cosby as the reason, for good or ill, that we are all able to see this film today. In post-production, once again, Van Peebles, looking for ways to save money, had decided initially to score the film himself. He managed to select some basic melodies that he liked, banging them out initially on a piano, playing by ear in a sort of funk jazz style, not being able to do much beyond that when it came to scoring music properly. He had a secretary at the time who informed him that her boyfriend had a band, and... 
you know, Melvin Van Peebles went out and met with him. He was this nice guy named Maurice who said, yeah, I'd be interested in helping lay down some tracks that you had scored. That's what they were going to do to create the soundtrack album. Desperate and honestly needing that kind of labor, Melvin Van Peebles ended up hiring Maurice and his band to record the soundtrack for a very nominal fee, about $500. Thus, Maurice White got his then very unknown band, Earth, Wind, and Fire, to sit down and record the official motion picture soundtrack for Sweet Sweetback. The band did get new listeners and new spins from that soundtrack, and the release came out right before the movie, which managed to make its way all the way to number 13 on the Billboard charts for R&B albums. Oh, the problem though, that check that Van Peebles cut for the band for $500, it ended up bouncing. Even with the film in the can, Van Peebles had other problems. He couldn't find anybody that was willing to distribute this picture. He would eventually turn to Cinemation Industries, a company that specialized in releasing exploitation and adult films into theaters just to get it booked. But there was a catch. Van Peebles would lease the film to them. He still owned it. Not helping matters, Van Peebles was getting into a very public dispute with the MPAA, going so far as to call out Jack Valenti himself, noting that the film was getting an X rating with the edit of the film that he had cut, and he was unwilling to make changes that would fit into the MPAA's standards that would consider it to be an R release. And he would go on various radio and television shows to promote the film, and he would talk about how he would rather see his movie, his vision, his art released as an unrated, at least at the time a good old NR listing, film and let people decide for themselves if it's something they wanted to see. Hitting back on the pornographic intonations that the MPAA was mating towards his art. Van Peebles turned this into a very smart publicity campaign, and he created t-shirts and did photo shoots, telling anyone and everyone who would listen that his new picture was rated X by an all-white jury, which further pointed out the lack of diversity in Hollywood and got people to talk about his upcoming picture. In the end, only two theaters in the United States would screen Sweet Sweetback when it was released. The Grand Circus Theater in Detroit, where the film had its official debut, and then a week later it would get shown at the Coronet Theater in Atlanta. But folks, I'll say this. You've been ever so patient in my prattling on. How's about I shut up and we get to that trailer? What do you say? Yes, the good night fairy godmother. 
Why, didn't you know that all good dates had fairy godmothers? Every dollar we make, the Guinness get 20, the police get 40, and Goldberg get 50. Anybody can tell you that don't add up to a dollar. That adds up to a dollar and a dime. I haven't seen him, sweetheart. I haven't seen the cat. I mean, I, I don't want to see him. You just keep leaning and leaning and leaning. Get the f*** off of my back, man! I'm, I'm clean, man. Look, I'm clean. There's nothing there. Look, look! When I get pissed off, man, I will throw a not-your-bone nigga fit on you, understand? Leave! Split! Leave, motherfucker! Slapping up on some white cops. <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm gonna say a black Ave Maria for you. on our main character, Sweet Sweetback, as played by Melvin Van Peebles, running through the neighborhoods of L.A., looking injured and desperate. Text flashes across the screen, stating, Sire, these lines are not an homage to brutality that the artist invented, but a hymn from the mouth of reality, and it's attributed to a traditional prologue from the Dark Ages. Sirens suddenly blare in the background, and we freeze yet again on Sweetback running harder now, with a note that appears stating that this film is dedicated to all of the brothers and sisters who have had enough of the man. We then drift back to the past and see a young, hungry boy, as played by Mario Van Peebles, being taken in and fed by the ladies of a brothel. He's homeless, and he has nowhere to go. And so he's adopted into the makeshift family who live and work there, starting out with a job as a towel boy. On one particular evening, the young boy is called into one of the working girls' rooms, and while gospel music swells, we get two bits of information. First, he is very talented in the arts of love. And second, he earns himself the moniker of Sweetback, thus ushering in our title. After the scene ends, the boy is both figuratively and literally transformed into a man, and we get to see Melvin Van Peebles pick up the character again, serving as a time jump to our tale. Sweetback still lives and works in the brothel, now a vaunted sex worker, but when called for, he's also an enthusiastic bouncer. As he is working, being a part of a live sex show, some plainclothes cops come in and start hassling Sweetback's boss, the proprietor of the establishment, Beetle, as played by Simon Chuckster. 
to let them take one of his men in, you know, just for temporary holding, rounding up some of the, quote, usual suspects to make it appear that they're working hard on a murder case. Besides, you're getting a lot of static from the chief about that stiff that was found yesterday, you know what I mean? We don't know nothing about no dead man. We know that, but the commissioner doesn't. We just want to borrow one of your boys for a couple hours and take him downtown to make us look good, official-wise. Why me? I'm sure we're men already. George is sick. You're our friend. We knew you'd be willing to lend a hand. <laughs> when did you people start getting so interested in black folks? Dead or alive? It's progress. I can't. I'm sure. Only got two guys working now. Down to explain, sweep back the train, and the two of them to found some bounce. <laughs> We've got a nice understanding, Beetle. It's mutual. Everybody profit. Let's keep it that way. The cops in question put the screws to Beetle, subtly threatening that they thought they had an understanding, and they start noticing things that they could shut him down for, causing the man to quickly give in. Once Sweetback is done performing, of course. He'll have him get dressed, he'll have him go along with the detectives for a ride. Now, the two plainclothes officers do promise they'll have Sweetback back to work by noon the next day, telling Beetle that he's indeed doing the right thing. Sweetback cleans up and comes along, riding in the back of the squad car, prepared to spend the night in jail, posing for a lineup. That is, until the radio goes off and alerts the detectives to a situation that's happening in the neighborhood of Crenshaw, where radicals are, quote, disturbing the peace. They answer and divert away from their main mission, and they end up extracting a young, militant civil rights advocate, Mumu, as played by Hubert Scales, from a rally he was holding. They end up cuffing him in the car with Sweetback. Now, instead of going on to the precinct as planned, the detectives decide they're going to take a small detour by way of the oil fields, taking out both of the black men, you know, to get them, quote, a little fresh air. It's here that Sweetback is uncuffed, and the detectives take turns beating Mumu. All right, why don't you step out of the way here? Get some fresh air. That's better. Look at here. He doesn't look very tough to me. He's looked tough to yeah. you. Huh? I don't look too tough. Don't mark his face. Oh, no, no. Sir, <laughs> I think he's drunk. Stand on your feet. You're a tough man. Hey, sweet man. I'm sorry, man. We got you two are attached together. Let's see if we can get a little air between you. At first, Sweetback doesn't get involved. But as the police get more and more violent with the young man, who is not resisting or even fighting back, something snaps inside of him. And after wrapping the open handcuffs around his fist, creating a crude set of knuckle dusters, he ends up attacking the white officers. All of this violence takes place off screen, which leads us to only seeing the end result of a painfully beat up and shocked Mumu standing there with Sweetback holding a bloody set of handcuffs. 
Thanks, man. Where are we going? Where you get that wee shit? We are then treated to time dilation, where Sweetback returns home to the brothel, asking Beetle for help in trying to get him out of the city. While Beetle agrees that he will have a place for Sweetback, he urges the young man to go and hide somewhere else, both to keep himself out of jail and to allow him to have some plausible deniability. As Sweetback leaves, though, Beetle seems somewhat disheartened, more than aware that there are two uniformed police officers waiting outside for Sweetback. Sweetback! Yeah. Why you gonna speak? Yeah. We got a chopper, Scotch, you know. Don't lay it on you. Sweetback, baby. Good, yeah. Looking good. Yeah, baby. Might be off cool. Cause what you do will affect all the rest of our little employees. We can't have that, cause we got a good operation going here. Mean public relations, a nice little business. Sweetback is grabbed and arrested by the officers, who call in the commissioner, as played by John Dulgan. And he's a man who's grandstanding for the press and wants to make an example out of anyone who would dare to attack two police officers. Blaming this behavior on the now-missing Mumu, the commissioner, through coded language, instructs the officers to beat a confession out of Sweetback to help find the man. While Sweetback is unfortunately taking his lumps, a crowd of revolutionaries starts to surround the cop car, and with a Molotov cocktail, they end up setting it alight, which allows Sweetback to run from the police, and for them to focus on both their burning vehicle and then later extracting themselves from the mob. 
Sweetback again flees, stopping off at an old girlfriend's place first to get his cuffs cut off, and then later he swings through an inner-city church where he asks the minister to help him. He's again, though, turned away. You see, the pious man of God, who's decked out in a bunch of finery, is himself running both a drug rehabilitation center, which is really a cover for his own ventures into prostitution and gambling. And honestly, he doesn't want the police coming around and interfering with his business. He's still happy, though, that some corrupt police officers got it at the hands of Sweetback. Sweetback is, again, forced to go on the run, calling in favors from a few low-level criminals that he knows, and discovering that Moomoo is already there himself, with the same idea. Pay these guys to get us out of town, dropping them off at the city limits. They get a lecture, though, for their inquiries. What does a dead man need bread for? So they was whipping a brother. How many brothers have you whipped? How many sisters have you slipped? Life is tough, baby. A real struggle. From the womb to the tomb. Every dollar we make. The Guinness get 20. The police get 40. The Goldbergs get 50. Anybody can tell you that don't add up to a dollar. That adds up to a dollar and a dime. That's why all us niggas are so far behind. And Africa show stretch forth arms. Yeah. And bring back a bloody stump. We are Puerto Rico Libre. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't forgotten your statement. Squeak back. If I had the dough, I would lay it on you. But I don't have it. I wouldn't shuffle that shit, you baby. I wouldn't do it for nothing. You can't get out of this town on wings, wheel, or steel. I wouldn't shuffle that shit, you brother. The police go back to the brothel where they torture Beetle, purposely deafening the man by firing a pistol next to his ears to get him to talk. He still refuses to turn over Sweetback to them. Sweetback and Mumu keep working their way south, stopping off at first in a building they think is abandoned. But they wind up being captured as, um, guests of a rather rough biker gang who make this building their base of operations. They end up being challenged to a duel by the president of the gang, who is revealed to be a woman who goes by the name of Big Sadie. Sweetback offers to duel her by way of sex, and thus he's forced to perform in front of all of the bikers in attendance. He does so, though, and he outlasts and defeats Big Sadie, causing the gang to escort Mumu and Sweetback onto a different safe house location where they can be picked up by a black biker gang. The bikers who take them, though, don't follow through with Sadie's promise to give them safe passage, and they instead tip off the cops looking for a reward on the two fugitives. Officers end up coming, and it does turn into a fight, with Mumu getting shot twice for his trouble, while Sweetback ends up triumphantly killing their assailants. Their contact, a black biker, is played by John Amos, rolls up, ready to take one of them to safety on his bike, which Sweetback instructs him to take Mumu to safety, telling the biker, he's our future. Sweetback is again on the run, and this time he's making his way across the desert, pushing south towards Mexico. The police have been shaking people down, assaulting folks back in the neighborhood to get information, even bringing Beetle in to identify a dead body, but they haven't been able to quite catch up with Sweetback yet. 
During his flight, he does get wounded from a distance by an officer with a rifle. He survives by drinking from puddles and dining on lizards that he finds as he makes his way towards freedom. He hops trains, he hitchhikes, he flat out runs across the desert, and he ends up swapping clothes with a traveler that he meets on the road. Unfortunately, though, the police catch on to this and now know that he's under a new description. But Sweetback still manages to evade them. Falling in with a group of hippies at a music concert, he ends up hiding on the hillside, concealing his face by way of having sex with a woman who's at the concert. He ends up being spotted, though, a little bit later as his travels continue, and a local sheriff's department starts to hunt him down with their dogs as he gets close to the border. Letting the dogs loose out into the dark of night, the deputies have a good laugh as they hear a tremendous amount of barking and struggling out in the distance, assuming that the dogs have eventually caught up, found Sweetback, and killed their prey. In the morning's light, though, it's revealed that Sweetback has made a stand. The bodies of dead dogs are seen floating in the river, and Sweetback is now gone, safely crossing across to being a free man in Mexico. The screen becomes covered with text again, demanding that people watch out, noting that there's now a badass nigger coming back to collect some dues as the credits start to roll. Oh man, there's so much to break down here, so where do we even start? Okay, let's talk about what's good. Now, as an independent film, working under these conditions with this crew, this movie is nothing short of spectacular. It's a walking triumph of overcoming adversity to tell a story that matches the artist's vision. As a story, honestly, there's not a ton here. It's more of a commentary on what this man is having to go through, thrown into a situation that is not of his making, and then having to endure the consequences of both defending himself and others on his quest to escape with his life intact. Sweetback, while it's played a little loose, is a complex character. Even with this minimal delivery of lines, he's always taking everything in. And from our first introduction to him in the beginning to his desperate run, we get to see, while he may be poor, while he may not have that formal education that the people who are trying to take advantage of him and who are hunting him have, he's still very savvy, and he sees the big picture. Thus, everybody who encounters him underestimates him as this film goes on. Van Peebles, for a man who's not a trained actor, is marvelous here. So much is conveyed with just the slight tilt of his head and the movement of his eyes. That initial scene where Sweetback is offered up to the police officers by Beetle, where he's treated like he's dumb, as if he's just gonna go along unaware of the situation at hand, this is awesome. It is clearly old hat to Sweetback. He saw these cops coming a mile away. He sees the pain that Beetle is having when he's offering him up. But he purposely is keeping his mouth shut and he's doing what he's told to get this situation over with as soon as possible. And all of that is conveyed with a slight cock of the head and a sort of wry look. And it is really well done. 
Now, some have stated that Sweetback's sudden caring during the beating of Mumu seems out of place for the context of the story. Why would you get involved? Even interfere with the police, especially when you know what's going on, and since he doesn't seem to care for others involved on this trip as he goes. But Sweetback's change of heart, watching a man who just was advocating for equal rights being abused by police officers, causes him to start to care. And over the course of that run, we see Sweetback gradually evolve, by way of action of course, he's not a man of words, into changing his views and sort of changing the way he focuses on being part of something larger than himself. Hence, he makes sure that the injured Mumu is whisked away to safety at the end of the film, telling the man that he entrusts him to with, take him, he's our future, Br'er. He's not going to be a martyr for a cause if he can help it, but at least he is fully committed to the cause in a way that he wasn't before. And his way of showing that is to allow Mumu to live while Sweetback takes his chances on his own. Now, in this film, Mario Van Peebles shows how racism is multifaceted, multi-layered, and how even in places where everyone is supposed to be on even ground, there are taboos that are very much in place that can't be broken without penalty. For example, the sex show scene in the brothel. The cops are on board and are enjoying themselves with everything that's going down, as are the patrons and its mixed company. Everybody is game to enjoy what they're being involved with until it becomes apparent that a well-off white woman who is in attendance, when she decides that she's going to like to participate, all of a sudden the temperature of the room changes for everyone. The police suddenly get angry that it would even be suggested. Beetle is forced to quickly signal out to Sweetback, no, we're not allowing this to happen. And even the guests and participants start to look side to side in worryment. It's crazy. It's also important to note, Van Peebles has created himself a modern mythical folk hero here with Sweetback tapping in to two of the more traditional African folktale tropes. One of a trickster hero, often associated with the character of the signifying monkey, and the anti-hero that is just simply known as the bad man. Now, don't let the latter's name get it twisted for you. Yeah, the archetype is known for violence, but the characterization is one of a man who really gives zero thoughts to the opinions of society and others, and instead he lives by his own coded values, sometimes delivering harm to others who get in his way, and other times helping those who align with his own goals. Case in point, you would encounter this character with the song the traditional song, I should say, Stacko Lee, or depending on who you're listening to, sometimes the song has been changed into the character of Stagger Lee over the years. That's a great example of this type of archetype. It's a man who has no problem killing to achieve his stated objective. So the best way I can describe this as translating into the, <clears throat> when I say mainstream, I really mean white way that 
my honky brethren can at least wrap their heads around it, uh, that folk hero equivalent is the man with no name, that sort of Clint Eastwood iconic gunslinger character you'd find in a bunch of immoral spaghetti westerns. He's not taking any shit, he's not giving anything out that isn't deserved, and if you get in his way, you might end up dead, but, you know, he'll also help people out when he thinks it's the right thing to do. Sweetback is absolutely the latter embodiment. He doesn't really speak. I mean, sincerely, in this whole movie, Melvin Van Peebles only has six full lines of dialogue for the film. So the focus is really on the action and the intent rather than the wordplay. Him looking steely-eyed. Him squinting. Him taking it all in. And if that doesn't embody the archetype of the bad man, I don't know what does. Alright, what doesn't work? Well, what's bad here for me is something that's both rough for the time and sort of even harder as the years have gone on. More in line with the mores of the 70s than anything that Melvin Van Peebles can be accused of. It's sort of the generic misogyny of this film, and it makes it a hard pill to swallow if you're bringing this to modern audiences. It's not a film that modern female viewers are going to say, yeah, that was solid after viewing it. Women are, at best here, props in this movie and I will leave the worst up to you. Now, I can wrap my head around early initiation of Sweetback at the hands of a prostitute. Is it tragic? Yeah, but it's a story, and honestly, that is sort of a common one that has happened in other stories. So pretending that it has never happened in life or that it's ever happened in its stories is sort of an insult to the intelligence of viewers. It's more of the ending that's a little harder to swallow. Now, I've seen the ending, and, and by ending, I am talking when Sweetback is hiding at the concert right before he makes his last final run. I've seen it interpreted two ways when he's at that music festival. Sweetback evades detection by being on top of a woman during the concert, which causes the police to ignore him. We see Sweetback from their point of view. It's just a woman's frightened face looking up at the cops. But then we get to see the camera pan to a side view of the couple, and we see Sweetback grimacing. He has an extended knife in his hand, and it is held close to their bodies where the police can't see it. So this could be read one of two ways. Either A, Sweetback is forcing himself on this woman out of desperation at knife point. He is raping her. Or B, Sweetback is actually being helped by this woman, and the knife is out and extended, waiting to be used on the police if he is discovered. Depending on who you talk to and what you read about this scene, it's open to interpretation. I've seen both listed. Some have gone the rape route, showing that Sweetback is not a good guy. He's pragmatic, but still problematic, and this is a, just another example of horrific misogyny in action that the story serves up. Others have praised him for his quick thinking, commenting that he is posing as a man having sex with a very willing woman, hoping that he's not going to get noticed, a knife ready for the cops if they discover him. Now, personally, I'd like to think it was the latter myself, but no matter which it really is, the scene itself has not aged well as time has rolled on. 
Although, again, I'll admit, I understand the logic that it is having in service of the plot. On that same level, but making it more of a, quote, me problem for sure, I am not a fan of the death of animals in this story. I know that dogs did not really die. I understand that completely. I don't even, you know, I understand. You need to have animals die in stories at times. Sometimes it does move the plot along. And it makes sense in the context here. Sweetback's final killing of these dogs chasing him as he makes his way across the border. Plot-wise, it works. What I get to see, though, is unnecessary to me. I understand this is in service of the larger narrative, but honestly, the ending where you see the bodies of multiple, multiple dead dogs feels very gratuitous and extreme to me in this tale. But taking that out of it, and taking instead the social and gender implications, and removing them, the real problem that Sweetback has these days with modern viewers, it's pacing. With having a non-narrative story structure that plays around with time jumps and Van Peebles' own style of shooting large swatches of scenes for coverage, one of the greatest sins that Sweet Sweetback's badass song has with modern viewers is it's too slow for their taste. I can dig it and I can understand it, but the point is to show the run, to show the journey. And for modern audiences who have watched modern action movies, watching Sweetback mount yet another fence to look left and look right before running off into some scrub of the Mojave Desert, that gets old mighty quick in a film that doesn't have a very verbal protagonist, nor a strong level of dialogue to help move this story forward. So I can hear you out there now. Chris, how was the film received? Well, critically, it caused a firestorm. It divided intellectuals, film critics, and civil rights groups alike, each of them debating the pros and cons of what Van Peebles was offering here. Some mainstream outlets opted to take a favorable view, such as critic Clayton Riley of the New York Times, noting that the character itself was the ultimate sexualist when it comes to seemingly having vacant eyes and an unrevealing mouth, all written to the protocols in American domestic colonialism. But this wasn't a main point. In reality, White audiences were quite scared about what Melvin Van Peebles was offering up. Archer Winston of the New York Post stated flatly that whites would have to be masochists to accept the unrelenting portrait of their film fellows. Vincent Canby of the New York Times was equally enraged almost psychotic and absolutely mindless. This is a dirty political exploitation film. Sweetback, to mainstream white culture at the time, was befuddling as it was frightening. How could, as scholar Ed Guerrero so succinctly point out, audiences come to champion a so-called, quote, bad nigger character who challenges the white system, see, oppression, and win? Now, clearly, there's a double standard here. 
when Clint Eastwood or John Cassavetes or Lee Marvin of the day, when they don't talk in a film, when they're tough, when they mete out violence, when they're hard and flinty and tough, they're considered, you know, heroes. They're tough guys. They're brave. They're strong. When Melvin Van Peebles does it in the character of Sweet Sweetback, he's arrogant, he's uppity, he's revolutionary, he's politically loaded, he's dangerous. Audiences had a real hard time with that, at least mainstream ones. This was not what they were used to seeing. Here's the irony, though. Mainstream Hollywood would go on to co-opt and come to dominate this entire genre of black exploitation in just a scant few years after Sweetback's groundbreaking release, turning it into just another money-making enterprise and leaving politics completely out of it. Thus, you would have black actors and black cast working on films that were funded, written by, and directed by whites. And for the record, some of those films are indeed great. We might even cover a few of them here this month. But the artist and the political implications got muddled and lost in the translation. And black exploitation would, from a certain point of view, be just another form of exploitation that would be perceived as a setback by way of the intelligentsia who were looking for higher levels of thought when it came to art done by black performers and artists, simultaneously spreading a different and skewed form of black popular culture to the masses. Now this is where you have groups like the NAACP pushing back on films that were made after Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. They were upset that the youth of the day were being exposed to these, quote, black movies that glorified black males in roles like pimps, dope pushers, gangsters, these so-called super males. Insert the problem, though. It was the youth to them, right? Lerone Brennett of Ebony ended up writing, there's a certain grim white humor. In fact, that the black marches and demonstrations of the 1960s reached an artistic fulfillment, and then in the 1970s, with characters like Flip Wilson's Geraldine and Melvin Van Peebles' Sweet Sweetback, to be provocative and ultimately insidiously reincarnations of all of those sapphires and studs of yesteryears. Basically, what was happening was the established and frankly older members of the black community were becoming befuddled. Yeah, art does reflect social and political discourse of the age, but to them, this wasn't a story that people should be heralding as a positive. This wasn't one that was going to provide direction. Thus, it was dismissed by the elders as a daydream, an exercise in wish fulfillment. Understandably, they worried that this would lead to more unrealistic forms of art and exploitation that would cast the black community in a bad light. To the African-American bourgeoisie, this was a real problem. Yet to their children, who viewed them as aiding and abetting white America's attempts in assimilating blacks to white culture, rather than displaying black culture and identity, this caused the youth to embrace the trappings of, if you'll excuse the phrase, the authenticity of the style and sophistication of the streets, the kind of characterizations of 
pimp chic for the day. And while their parents were wringing their hands and worrying, the young, well-educated, politically committed children of those very African-American bourgeoisie began to embrace the characterizations that we get on screen with black exploitation, and that would set the stage for the next decade of filmmaking. Also, just to be fair to the genre and the people who took it in in general, as author Donald Bogle previously provided, there's a benefit here if one looks to a more middle path. Yeah, we are talking about a genre that exists as exploitation. But films like this one, like Sweet Sweetback, that would come after, they were playing to the needs of the black audience. They were craving heroic figures without trying to ground an answer for those needs of a hero in realistic terms. It was made for entertainment. And it's through entertainment that, yeah, political and social messages could creep in. The entertainment was for the sake of entertainment. There wasn't really a focus or a moral of the story to really dig into. And it still manages to provide insight and commentary on the quality of life that African Americans were experiencing as citizens of this country. Reactions aside, audiences would vote with their ticket purchases. Sweet Sweetback opened on March 31st, 1971 in Detroit. It would go on to gross $15 million at the box office. Again, it was made for $150,000. That's a hit. Huey Newton, leader of the Black Panthers of the day, loved the message and supported the film, making it mandatory viewing for members of his group to go out and see the picture multiple times. Eventually, the film would get picked up and screened in other places, but the main business was still done between those two theaters in Detroit and Atlanta, which was very telling to the mainstream studios who were watching. You had a film made by an African-American director for an African-American audience turning a tidy profit? Why, we're interested in getting some of that money too. And thus, while it was never the intention to kick off a wave of films, it was by its simple existence as an independent project that Melvin Van Peebles with Sweet Sweetback ended up spawning an entire genre of films that were looking to imitate and cash in on some of its success. Now, over the years, this is a film that has sort of faded into the background. A movie that people have heard of, but not many have taken the time to go out and see. Occasionally, there'd be references made to it, but honestly, for my money, I have to just jump immediately to the fifth season of The Simpsons, where Principal Skinner is fired and he ends up forging an entirely different relationship with Bart. That episode is called Sweet Seymour Skinner's Badass Song, and I always thought that was funny that it would parody it. Now, the movie itself was rescued from obscurity some 20 years later by Melvin's son Mario Van Peebles when he made the docudrama about the trials and tribulations that his father went through getting this picture made. And that's where we started this whole thing, with me saying I first came across it by watching 2004's Badass. When that was released, it introduced Sweetback to an entirely new generation of filmgoers, and although that film itself was not a huge hit, 
It was at least well received, and it's honestly a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Seriously, go check it out. It's a good one. But Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song is a film that is from another time, another place. And it's commenting on cultural and political norms that are, thankfully for the most part, alien to us now. Which, yeah, that does make it hard to translate to modern viewers, and it causes people to focus on <clears throat> perhaps some of the newer problems that the film poses, and you know, causes people to miss the context in which the film was initially rooted. Is it a movie for everybody? No. And I'm not going to tell you it's a must-see. And it's probably never going to grace anyone's required viewing list. But I'll tell you this, if you're a fan of independent cinema, or you're interested in seeing the evolution of exploitation as a genre, or you just like the creator Melvin Van Peebles and his important place in history, it's something that I would tell you is very much worth your time. And therefore, you should go out and make an effort. Go see Sweet Sweetback today. The version of Sweet Sweetback's badass song screened here at the LSCE was the 2021 Criterion Collection released. Those bastions of culture have put together a box set of Melvin Van Peebles' essential films, and Sweet Sweetback is one of them. Now, Amazon, currently for the moment, is selling that entire set for half price at $62.49, and for that type of bread, you can get a Blu-ray box set that comes with five films, The Story of a Three-Day Pass, Watermelon Man, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Don't Play Us Cheap, and Mario Van Peebles' biopic picture of his dad, Badass. You also get a bunch of featurettes with Mario, Melvin, film critics Elvis Mitcher, producer Warrington Hudland, scholars Gerald R. Butters Jr., Novotny Lawrence, Amy Abugo Orgiri, talking all about the films and their influence on them. You also get film commentary from Melvin Van Peebles himself, introductions to all of his films from him, uh, plus his three early shorts, A King, the three pickup men for Herrick, Sunlight, and plus the full 2005 documentary on Van Peebles' life entitled How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It Too. You get that, the story behind Badass, The Birth of Black Cinema, Melvin Van Peebles' The Real Deal, episodes of The Black Journal from both 1968, 1971, 1972, plus multiple interviews on French and American television, interviews with Melvin Van Peebles on the Detroit Tube Works, introductions, trailers, plus a 64-page book with articles on the films themselves. And again, all of that is yours for a little over 60 bucks, which, again, I would tell you is a steal. But if that's not something you're willing to do, you only want one movie and one movie only, the good folks at Vinegar Syndrome have equally put out their own cleaned-up and special version of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song with their 2018 release on Blu-ray. You can go on Amazon right now and find that release as a Blu-ray DVD combo for $26.19. And in doing so, you get the wonderful movie itself, plus archival making of featurettes, interviews with actress Neva Rochelle, the original theatrical trailer, reversible cover artwork, extra subtitles, extra 
trailers, again, well worth your money. So, just wanted to throw it out there, folks. Remember, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you should purchase movies. We just think in this day and age, it's so very important to keep supporting physical media so that these fine companies that own the rights to these wonderful films that we all know and love will keep releasing that content to us. And really, at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? Getting more of what we know and love? Besides... Sweet Sweetback's badass song is such a different picture. It's such an interesting example of independent filmmaking. I can't imagine you've listened to me talk about it and you're thinking, yeah, I'll pass. So with that, I'm going to tell you again, what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of Sweet Sweetback's badass song today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope we'll see you back here next week. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please, we would ask, give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you end up leaving us a fun review? I hope you did. If you did, hell, I'll read it here. Give you a shout out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please feel free to swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've also been recently added to Stitcher, so you can find us there. Give us a spin if you like. Proud to say we're also on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply shout out and say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and review if you could, please. Or, hey, just feel free to do that to any of the lists that we're a part of to help give us a boost in the old rankings. You see, the more reviews, the increased likes... All of that affects those marvelous algorithms, and then that makes us more searchable. And then, we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do! Do you have any comments for us? Any questions? Any movies you'd like me to cover? Anything you'd like to tell me that I got wrong? Well, we want to hear from you. So please, send us an email or an audio clip. Send it to us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? We use it here. Follow us on Twitter at LSCEP or find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, please take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy everybody and remember life's too short not to live in the past take it easy out there folks and now folks it's time to say good night we sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment please drive home carefully and come back again soon good night